It's Conrad Thompson, and you're listening to Foley is Pod. And, of course, we couldn't do it without the hardcore legend himself, the Hall of Famer. Ladies and gentlemen, Mick Foley. Mick, how are you, man? I'm doing great, Conrad. It's great to be here with you for a monumental episode of Foley is Pod. Excited to be with you today. Where in the world do your travels take you? We're not here together in Huntsville. So where in the world is Foley's baby boy? I may or may not be within a few miles of the WWE compound where I may or may not be working on a television show. Let me just say, if I am working on a show, it's going really well. And hypothetically, if you were working on a show, we are definitely not talking about it here on the program. Can't talk about it. Yeah. I've been reprimanded once you're talking about it, but it is going well. Um, I'm really excited. Uh, you know, uh, if, if it is what we think it might be. It is going well. Well, it's going well on Folius Pod 2. We're pumped to be talking about yet another famous Undertaker-Mankind match. This one comes to us October of 1996. As a reminder, you guys hooked it up on pay-per-view at King of the Ring in June of 96. A lot of people were surprised you walked away with the win there. And even more surprised at SummerSlam when Paul Bear would turn on the Undertaker aligning himself with you in that famous boiler room brawl. And now in mid-September, it's announced that there's going to be a buried alive match. Now we covered the September pay-per-view. It was you and Shawn Michaels, one of the greatest of your career. But now here on October 20th, as we're talking about it, yesterday was the, or as folks are listening to this, yesterday was the anniversary. But buried alive, man, what a moment. When do you remember, or how do you remember this first being discussed. Oh, wow. Well, when we talked in depth about, um, uh, uh, in your, in your house with Shawn Michaels mind games. And we, you know, talked about the fact, the only thing that really marred the match was the inconclusive ending. And I said, I would have rather just taken the L and got my heat back, but I know that WWE had something big for me. Now, I don't know if I knew what it was, at the time I wrestled Shawn Michaels, although I'm guessing I did because they'd need to start promoting that thing in a hurry. But as soon as I heard buried alive, where the goal is literally to bury your opponent alive, I was in because I like that. You know, I like the weird stuff. I've always liked stipulation matches. And this is one that seemed to lend itself to being creative, which I really enjoyed as well. So you're, you're no stranger to, um, well, interesting gimmick matches. You go all the way back to 1991, and we saw you in a Chamber of Horrors match. Nobody yeah. ever seen one of those. Uh, but this buried alive concept, did you think that this had a chance to veer into being hokey? Did you ever consider it hokey, or were you just excited about it from the jump? Well, I thought it could be hokey, and that's why I thought we had to do uh, a good job telling the story, utilizing the stipulation, um, and suspending people's uh, disbelief to where they believe these guys are trying to bury each other. It's an interesting concept. Do you remember there being like sketches of what the set might look like or anything like that when they first bring you the idea? I do not recall that, and I do not even recall knowing uh, the magic that was going to make my the continuation of my life possible. 
but I knew that Richie Posner was working on something big and that uh, uh, there were not likely to be uh, any uh, fatalities on the set of Buried Alive. <laughs> well, it's funny because in my conversations with Bruce over the years, he yeah. said that the original plan was for this match to actually be shot at a graveyard, like an Ooh. actual graveyard, which I guess might would have made it the first cinematic match in professional wrestling history. Do you remember that ever being discussed, at least okay. with you? I don't, but I'm envious now. I'm not saying it wasn't discussed, but uh, I think I would have remembered that because I would have loved to have taken on that challenge. And as we'll probably get into it, because Bruce was on hand when we were filming vignettes in the graveyard, you know, we already had quite a bit of time in that graveyard. And uh, when we did the vignettes, oh, brother, you talk about the classic uh, detective novel. It was a dark and stormy night. Was it ever there at the graveyard when we were shooting our vignettes? Brother, that would have made for amazing uh, uh, cinematic movie, cinematic match. Uh, of course, the uh, promos are uh, Mankind with uh, Paul Bear yeah. and then The Undertaker, of course, doing separate promos from a graveyard each week. That's the way we would build this up. And Bruce has said the graveyard you referenced was in Connecticut. What do you remember about those shoots? <laughs> The, you want me to go with the big reveal right away? Well, yeah, if you'd like. Uh, what I remember most, uh, raining, crazy rain. I remember being extremely excited and, uh, you know, c- commitment, you know, 100% commitment. And then I remember there being a uh, a little bit of a timeout as we, meaning the WWE team, had to discuss this unique situation with the owner of that particular plot of cemetery who just happened (laughs) to pick this dark and stormy night to visit their final resting place for their loved one. Oh, find Paul Bearer and mankind in their grave. So, uh, all right, hang on, help me out here. Are you, are you saying that? There was a funeral planned maybe for the following day, and they'd already dug the hole. Well, no, 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 I don't think it was for the following day. I think this was just, you know, people that buy a plot of land for their uh, eternal in the future place, and they just, and they want to see it. They want to visit it. It makes people feel good to know. Remember to, uh, uh, in Christmas Carol where Bob Cratchit's like, oh, it's such a leafy, lawny place, and it does my heart good. And, you know, so a final resting place that's really important to people. And uh, so I believe, I do not believe there was a funeral there the next day and that someone is going to be laid down in that grave. I could be wrong, but my my understanding was it was just someone who happened to pick that time to visit their grave. And they showed up and brother, there is mankind coming out of the grave, cutting promos in the rain. Paul Barry goes, oh, yes, yes. We even took a little, uh, I think it was Clint Black and saying, I'm no stranger to the rain. And Paul Bear like, oh, mankind, I'm no stranger to the rain. It was, uh, you could, you know, you, you couldn't write that. If you wrote uh, a scene where a guy comes, first of all, only in wrestling would you be doing vignettes in a graveyard during, I'll say it was an electrical storm because it sounds better that way, but 
it was a serious rainstorm. We can cut to, you know, if anyone look at those baguettes, I don't think we're allowed to show that type of stuff anymore. But uh, yeah, it was a, it was, it was a really rough night and they arrived to find uh, the hardcore legend frolicking about in their loved one's tomb. Uh, how easy was it to do these vignettes with Paul Bear? Like chemistry wise, did you guys have your timing down? And, you know, so far with this character, by and large, you've been doing a lot of these promos by yourself. Yeah. Uh, but now with, with the, the addition of Paul Baird is that you have to change up your timing or your presentation or your cadence or any of that. Well, man, I thought we worked off each other really well as we had in the market specific promos, uh, which were only seen by the people in those specific markets. So although we looked to be new together, we'd been cutting promos, uh, together, uh, for a while for market specific areas. And we just seemed to click. It was like one after another playing off each other. There was that uh, really fun promo that I really liked where I was like, Uncle Paul? <laughs> Hold on a second. Hold on. Let me see if I can get the guy himself to do it. I don't know if he's here, but yeah, we're going to try to find her. Uncle Paul, this grave doesn't look large enough for the undertaker. And then Paul would say, Oh, mankind, that grave's not for the Undertaker. That grave's for you. And then I would skedaddle out of the uh, the grave because you still want to give credence to the, the fact that this is Undertaker's domain. And right. even though, you know, I may mix it up and get in that grave and I, you know, like I'm not afraid of that grave, you have to sell that gimmick. And when you find out that you're frolicking about and what you think is the grave you were going to deposit your opponent, find out it's meant for you? Yeah, I think he would sell that. And I think I did. Uh, but it was just one after another. Uh, I think I earned a lot of goodwill with the company for being so enthusiastic about making those vignettes the best they could possibly be. And I think even when I came to Stanford on an off day, uh, for a fitting, you know, for a casket fitting. <laughs> Cornette was uh, talking about, you know, how people appreciated how easy I was to work with and that other people, you know, maybe as I got older, maybe what I would have complained about showing up on an off day to be fitted for a casket. But, uh, man, I just wanted everything I did to be as good as it could be. If that required going in for a casket fitting on an off day, I was all for it. So talk to me about casket fitting. What does that, is that as simple as it sounds? You come in and lay in a bunch of different ones and say, this one feels nice. You lay in it and you see if there's enough room for you to do what you have to do comfortable enough uh, because uh, the guys in the back would play ribs. They would lock you in there. So you had to know that there was enough air uh, to keep you going in the event of one of those ribs. And I don't care who you are. uh, We are not predisposed to enjoying uh, that type of, uh, closeness. So, uh, it's a very uncomfortable feeling, especially after a match. I'm talking about straight casket match. Uh, like the one I lost, uh, you know, the ones I lost to Undertaker in rapid succession on the road. You do your best, you know, you're, you're breathing pretty heavy because you're, you're putting out forth considerable effort. Now you get thrown in a casket, cover, you're covered up, you're locked in. Fans are pounding on it as you're going back to the dressing room. And now when you think you're in your safe place, 
some guy uh, backstage uh, thinks it's a good idea to not let you out. So, yeah, you definitely need to know that the casket has enough uh, breathing area. So casket fittings are definitely an underrated, unheralded part of WWE. And what these kids today, Conrad, they don't know about casket fittings. No, they, do. they don't. They don't know. But, uh, yeah, well, that was, that was a, hey, I was, I was so fortunate to have been working with The Undertaker, to have picked up uh, two Ws, which was kind of unheard of, back-to-back wins on pay-per-view matches. It was kind of a, a newer, more energized Undertaker. I think it was the uh, uh, really kind of the beginning of the striking Undertaker. He changed yeah. gears, you know. Uh, he, he had changed gears. He was moving quicker. It was still incredibly character-driven. But he was putting more of himself into that character, if that makes sense. And that's when he started emerging as a striker. Do you ever having conversations with him about him trying to switch the character up and doing more striking? Yeah, he told me that on uh, maybe uh, before our first dark match. And he was a guy who did not like to call much beforehand. Uh, and I mean, as you go along you get like uh, a series of moves that works for you. And so you, you might do that uh, along the route, but he liked to go out there and uh, he liked to make it happen in the ring. So talk to me about his initial impression of this concept of a buried alive match, because I could see how anyone could have some apprehension. Like, <laughs> I don't know about that. What did he think? Well, I, I don't, I can't tell you for a fact. I don't know. If we had that conversation. My guess would be that he liked it, and uh, at the risk of putting myself over, that I was a good guy to be having this uh, initial type of uh, gimmick match with. Uh, you know, I think by that point, we'd been working on the road for three months, and he knew that I liked uh, uh, the creative stuff with a little bit of, like, uh, silliness involved, but done in a kind of a macabre way, if that makes sense. Yeah. Uh, I will tell you, you know, you throw a lot of stuff at the wall and you see what sticks. And I came out one time, came from the back on a tricycle and it clotheslined me off the tricycle. And let's, uh, whether or not there were words spoken after the match is not important. What is important is I never approached the undertaker on a tricycle again. So <laughs> that was not something. <laughs> I could see how you would just want to take a shot because it's a little crazy, a little out there, but maybe I, not his speed. I mean, you know, I run away. That's what I did. And I'm, I'm going to tell you, I stole this little thing from Chris Candido, which is running as fast as you can, as hard as you can, not just getting away and looking around to see if everything's okay, but really hauling ass, like Josh Hawley type of hauling ass, if you know what I'm talking about. And and so those legs would be pumping and everything would be pumping. And when we did things at like the Kuwaiti National Soccer Stadium, that's a hundred yard dash. Right. In this case, I, I, I'm thinking it was Louisville. I don't know. I just saw a tricycle backstage. I said, I'm coming down an aisle on this tricycle, brother. Uh, that was the last time I came down that. <laughs> Our next partner is a product I literally use every day. My wife and I started taking AG1 at the start of the pandemic because we wanted to optimize our immune system. Well, along the way, we learned that you could get better gut health, more energy, and we hated, or I 
hated taking pills and vitamins. In fact, I always said, Hey, if I'm going to take this, it better taste good. Well, guess what? AG one does. What is this stuff? Athletic greens. All right. With one delicious scoop of AG one, you're absorbing 75 high quality vitamins, minerals, whole food source, superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens to help you start your day. Right. This special blend of ingredients supports your gut health, your nervous system, your immune system, your energy, your focus, your recovery, your aging, all the things. It's also lifestyle friendly. Whether you're trying to eat keto or paleo or vegan or dairy-free or gluten-free, it contains less than one gram of sugar, no GMOs, no nasty chemicals, no artificial anything, and it still tastes great. It's going to support better sleep quality and recovery. It's going to support mental clarity and alertness. And my wife and I kind of look at it as like all in one nutritional insurance, but don't take our word for it. Athletic greens has over 7,000 five-star reviews. And we believe it's time for you to reclaim your health right now and arm your immune system with convenient daily nutrition with just one scoop and a cup of water every day. That's it. No need for a million different pills and supplements to look out for your health. And to make it easy, athletic greens is giving you a free one year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com forward slash Foley. That's athleticgreens.com forward slash Foley to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. So I'm curious, you know, we've seen Vince McMahon give some pitches before, you know, for different documentaries and whatever. Is he the guy who who pitches this concept of a buried alive, or do you remember an agent trying to explain it? I think this was a corny call. I really do. And, uh, you know, Corny and I had a really good relationship, still do. And he could make bad stuff sound good, you know? He could take a sad song and make it better. Uh, But in this case, this was already is. He's selling me on the idea of a, you know, a brilliant symphony. And uh, I liked it. I like. I really liked it. And it, immediately I started thinking of ways that I could put my own stamp on. And I knew they were serious when I showed up, I think, for the casket fitting. And I saw the tombstone they were using. Uh, and it was a, ah, just a thing of beauty. This was a legit tombstone. It weighed several thousand pounds. Uh, engraved. It had uh, really great illustrations of me and the undertaker. And I remember thinking, like, if I could have one thing from my career, I would love to have that tombstone and make a coffee table out of it. So, um, well, they have it, you know, it's at the warehouse. I know it's at the warehouse. Yeah. Uh, but, the, you know, I, first of all, it would probably go through an you know, a floor, floor have to be. That's true. I mean, this thing is, is just massive. Uh, I still think it would make for a great coffee table, but it's got to be worth. It's got to be worth a lot of money. I were, imagine they paid a lot of money, and that's when it started dawning dawning on me. Even though it probably already had, having visually seen their pay per views at WrestleMania's and SummerSlams, like events is a guy. He's gonna he's gonna spend money to make money, and uh, and so they went all out to make this. Uh, Really something that wasn't laughable, but something that was suspenseful and uh, memorable. So I remember them moving that headstone around from town to town for the TV taping. So they moving that piece of business on a, 
a forklift or what? How are they? I'll let you know. Yeah, I guess it's on a forklift. Yeah, I don't know. But this is again, they leave no stone unturned. I don't think people can appreciate the inner mechanisms of WWE until they leave and go somewhere where those mechanisms are not there. Uh, it's it's really expensive to do things really well, and I'm not, and I don't know how AEW's done because I have never been backstage. Uh, but as far as uh, production being right on the money, uh, not missing a camera shot. I know some people are not fans of the, you know, Kevin Dunn's quick cuts. Uh, yeah, the quick cuts. But I'll take the quick quick cuts any day over the old school way of just showing us five minutes at a time on the hard camera interspersed with maybe a three or four second semi close up. Uh, right. It really wasn't until world class started putting a guy in the ring. Uh, that, uh, I think production picked up WWE's Madison Square Garden house shows were always shot really well, but they had the, you know, the, the, uh, I don't want to say mechanisms in place. Uh, I don't want to overdo mechanisms, but they had, uh, st- I don't want to say stuff. They had stuff in place that allowed them, uh, afforded them really good production values at the guard. So let's get back to these vignettes you're shooting in a freaking graveyard. It's raining. Uh, I- how does how does that finish? I mean, you're you're covered in mud and rain, and now you're going to jump in some dude's car and go back to the office. Is that the deal? I would imagine I went back to a two star motel room because <laughs> well, WWE had me there. They were putting me up in the same motel I'm in tonight, which is a, a nice hotel. It's just got to be. Uh, oh man, this is first class here, right? Well, well, how many stars are we in today? This is a this is a four star hotel. That's uh, a big big deal here. How about that? So there's a lot going on in the WWF. We we covered a lot of it in um, the Mind Games episode. Coming out of that show, the big angle that's being put on. See, hold on, you can see. I go around here, and you're like, "Where's the bed?" And that's a trick question. Is there is no bed because I'm in a suite. And so this is the extra room. Sweet oh. bedroom is Look over at you, that Mr. Way. Big yeah. Spender. Can't yeah. hide money. Uh, yeah, I'm playing with the I'm playing with the company's money here. I wouldn't put myself up in a nice suite. Well, you might be. We can't confirm that you are, right? Like hypothetically, you confirm it. But if WWE did have me here in official business and they were footing the bill, they went all out. So the big angle that's being pushed on TV is not always this buried alive match maybe it should be but we're also getting quite a bit of tv time to the rather silly rather regrettable fake diesel and fake razor ramon angle with jim ross maybe turning heel uh what do you think of that as it was happening because uh as a fan at home i'm just shaking my head like what a waste of time well Going in, I thought it was a creative angle because I thought it was supposed to get heat with fans who would know they were the bogus characters. But I believe they were trying to pass them off as the real guys that they thought um, initially uh, that they had um, the golden goose and that they had the uh, uh, the names they that uh, they had the copyrighted names and uh, it's kind of an insult to the guys talking about Kevin Nash and Scott Hall, but to all of us 
to think you could just throw in a replacement and fans would be fooled. Uh, I, I know they've done that before with um, luchadors thinking that nobody's going to know. And maybe in this country, uh, you know, we, you, they can be interchangeable. But uh, that's, you know, clearly in Mexico, they're going to take umbrage to that. But uh, when I found out that the goal was to fool fans into thinking these are the real guys, I immediately soured on the angle. I went from thinking it was funny to thinking it was pointless. Yeah. I think we all kind of thought it was pointless, too. What wasn't pointless as a fan to me at the time is the night after man, uh, Mind Games, we see ECW kind of be a focal point. We even see Taz uh, jump the guardrail with Bill Alfonso, and it looks like, hey, man, between what happened last night and here, maybe there's going to be a little WWF versus ECW angle. We eventually get that, but... It's maybe a year later with Jerry Lawler and Tommy Dreamer. Were you excited about the idea of maybe doing some stuff with the ECW guys? Or yeah, it would have been. But uh, by this, I don't even know by the next day if it's an angle or not. And uh, again, uh, we went into uh, we went deep, deep, deep into mind games, and I expressed that you know it it bothered me that guys that I worked with hand in hand and worked so hard with. Uh, might be taking uh, you know, the shine off my moment. Uh, I wish I'd had gotten the word so that I would not have been as well, especially being in the main event, going back to mind games. If they just buzzed me and said, by the way, this is a you know, this is an angle, go out there, you would show and tear the house down. But that was a definite concern going in. Again, I believe only a handful of people knew that they were working together. And on this night, uh, I don't recall. I don't even know what town it was. Do you know? I think they were in Philadelphia. Um, and, and I, wanted to, I wanted to ask about Terry Gordy, because as this is happening, uh, Terry Gordy is essentially finishing up. He had been in ECW for a handful of shots. And, of course, we know we're going to see him debut uh, at this pay-per-view, Buried Alive. Uh, you being a student of the game, I'm sure you were excited about the news that maybe Terry Gordy's coming in. Does that come through? Do you find out when you show up to the building? Are there whispers through the town? What do you remember? I would have known, but I was not as excited as I would have been a couple of years earlier because Terry had nearly passed away on a flight to Japan. Uh, I think it was safe to say that it was a pill overdose and that I believe Terry, you know, he was legally dead for a very short time. And then when he did come around, he was never quite the same. So it's been said that Raven was able to get a really good match out of him, kind of able to bring back the Gordy of old, but he was not the Gordy of old. I knew that because I'd worked, um, I, I stopped that answer. I'm going to give you a better answer. I knew that because I had worked with him in uh, IWA Japan. And so he was in phenomenal shape. It was like the leanest that any of us had ever seen Terry Gordy. But for anyone who had seen Terry as one of the, one of the top 10 American workers in the world and a guy who could work, oh man, he, you know, he, he would work that real uh, physical style, you know, mm-hmm. strong style before it was called strong style. And I remember, you know, Shane Douglas, you know, being in the dressing room when he was about to take on, uh, oh man, I'm trying to think of the uh, the guy, uh, Tenru. Yeah. And 
And you know, there would be no talking beforehand, and Gordy would get a message from someone, and he'd be like taping up his fist. He goes, you tell him, I, he sounds a little bit like funk, you know, that's the way he wants it, you know, that's the way it's going to be. Like, is it a fight? Shane said, is it real? I don't know. I mean, they're hitting each other as hard as they can. You know, they're they're kind of sort of taking care of each other on big bumps, but it's incredibly physical, and he thrived on that stuff. I had a pretty good match with Gordy at Global Wrestling in 1990, so I knew what it was like when he could really, or 91, sorry, and I watched really a student of the All Japan stuff, especially when it was style that I wanted to wrestle and guys I thought I could learn with. And, man, the fans today, not just fans, but wrestlers today want to see how to make the most out of everything. You could do a lot worse than checking out a Terry Gordy match. That being said, I knew this wasn't the old Gordy of old. And it was a little surprising that he was getting the call to come in. But, you know, maybe there was going to be a flash of that Gordy of old. So I, I, I was excited, but not as excited as I would have been if I thought we were getting that top 10 worker in the world, Terry Gordy. I think Gordy started working in ECW in June of 96. He would have a couple of matches with Raven in, in June and July, and he's going to stick around through October 26th. And then, of course, he's going to pop up here. At the time, we started to see a lot of talent maybe start and warm up a little bit in ECW and then come on over. Uh, we would see in November the debut of Flash Funk, the former Two Cold Scorpio. W- were you keenly aware that there was some sort of feeder system in place or at least a relationship that allowed talent to come up from there? Or did did they still try to pretend to the boys as if, oh, this is totally separate and we don't know? Yeah, anymore? I did not. I was not aware of that because the first um, the first several movements were from ECW to WCW. So I did not know there was any type of working relationship between any of the companies. I just thought uh, the men, mostly men, I'm not sure if there were any females who came over, uh, a female talent that came over. I just thought that uh, everyone realized, much as they loved the atmosphere there, that it it was still kind of tough for all but the first few guys, top few guys, to support a family with uh, ECW shows. And so it was a given that if somebody had the opportunity to go to one of the big two, co- big two companies, they were probably going to take it. So I did not think that the WWE was in on the negotiations at all. I was kind of blind to that. All right, boys and girls, the nights are getting longer, but the breeze isn't the only thing that's getting stiff. Come on, you already know the deal. This episode of Folia's Pod is proudly sponsored by Blue Chew, And guys, we all know that confidence can take you far in life. That's especially true in the bedroom. You know, when it's time to uh, step up to the plate, that's where Blue Chew comes in. Blue Chew is a unique online service that delivers the same active ingredients as both Viagra and Cialis, but in chewable form and at a fraction of the cost. You can take these dudes anytime, day or night, so you can plan ahead or be ready whenever an opportunity arises. As Mick and I always say, think of it as like a... uh, hot tag for your wiener. Now the process is simple. You'll sign up at bluechew.com. You'll consult with one of their licensed medical providers. And once you're approved, well, you'll receive your prescription within days. And here's the best part. It's all online. Y'all that means no visits to the doctor's office, no awkward conversations and no waiting in line at the pharmacy. 
Blue Chew's tablets are made in the USA, prepared and shipped directly to your door, all in a discreet package. But there won't be anything discreet about your package. Come on. If you can benefit from extra confidence when it's time to perform, chew it and do it. We're talking about having better sex, guys. Come on. We've got a special deal for our listeners. Try Blue Chew free when you use our promo code Foley at checkout. Just pay $5 shipping. That's BlueChew.com. The promo code is Foley to receive your first month for free. Visit BlueChew.com for more details and important safety information. And, oh, yeah, we thank Blue Chew for sponsoring today's podcast. The other big angle on TV is focusing on Mr. Perfect's return and his triangle feud, if you will, with Hunter Hearst Helmsley and Mark Merrow. And in somewhat of a strange booking, neither The Undertaker, Mankind, or Paul Bear make any live appearances to hype the match over the next month. It's always these pre-taped vignettes. You're still making all the shows, but yeah. they're electing to leave it to the recorded shots from the graveyard, which I guess makes sense for a buried alive match, but it is a little unusual not to appear in front of a live crowd. No, it is. Um, but I felt like we had done some good stuff and sometimes, um, you know, giving people a taste instead of a full meal before you go to the pay-per-view is a good thing. Uh, I do think that there was a live interview, but that may have been the day of the show. Okay. Uh, um, but I felt like, <sighs> I don't know. I, it was this surreal, uh, mysterious match. And maybe keeping it in pre-tape with the great music, sound effects, lighting. Maybe that was the best way to promote something so uh, outside the box. Let's let's sidebar here for a minute about what a cool opportunity this must be for you. You're coming off of a main event against Shawn Michaels for the world title. But I believe this is, and again, you're in the main event here in October. So now it's back-to-back main events. To remind everybody... August, you, you're going to beat The Undertaker at SummerSlam. Right. And Mankind's going to uh, now have the services of Paul Bear. Huge to split that pairing up after all this time. The next month, a title shot against the world champion. And now here, you're in the main event, seemingly for the third time. I know it's not technically the main event when you beat The Undertaker at SummerSlam, but it sure did feel like a big dog on yeah. deal. But this, I believe, is the first time the WWF champion doesn't compete on pay-per-view in the history of the company. Like, I don't think it had happened at that point where we had a crowned champion and he's not here. And and this is a company that's been on pay-per-view at this point for, I don't know, 10 years or so. And they're choosing to put you in this main event spot, not the world champion. It's got to make you feel good, right? Life is going well. Yeah, and you could feel the rumbling, Conrad, that when I came out for that match, you could just feel it. Not quite a chant yet, but those like, hey, Mr. Drowse. It was, uh, I, I think this <laughs> guy is Mr. In Your House. Yeah, so. Um, I love you for that. Uh, September 29th, you and Goldust are going to team up to lose to The Undertaker and Shawn Michaels at Madison Square Garden. It's a near 30-minute main event. This is your second match at the Garden uh, after defeating Jake Roberts there back in August. This has got to be 
a big deal for you. You're you're not only back in the garden working with the champ, working with the, the son of Dusty Rhodes, working with the Undertaker, but man, in the main event at the garden, does it get any bigger than this from no. this baby boy? Uh, no, and this is something I, I, we talked about in a previous episode about the the houses um, that if you want to go back in time, you could pinpoint that house as being the smallest uh, Madison Square Garden gate of an era. But that's only if you stop it at that match, because if you go forward a few months or a year, uh, you could also see that match, that tag match as being the biggest house at Madison Square Garden in the past 18 months or some time period. So I remember the house was considered really good by the standard of the times. And, uh, you know, if you're putting 10,000 people into a house show in 1996, you were really doing something special. It it sells out at like uh, 19,000 or so. Um, But I was thrilled to be there. My mom and dad were there. I remember I met up with them afterwards at uh, one of the local restaurants. And what I would do is I would peruse through the gifts that were meant for Shawn Michaels. And then I would pick out like a dozen roses and present them to my mom. Uh, much in the way that uh, during the Rock's chocolate chip cookie heyday, when eight to ten fans a night were baking him chocolate chip cookies and he was leaving them all behind, I was eating at least a dozen chocolate chip home-baked cookies every single night. I love it. I want to remind everybody that uh, this show is a matinee show, the one you're talking about that was so poorly attended. Yeah. There's 6,747 fans there. Why well, said there were ten? Unfortunately, only 3,917 fans were paying fans, but you're going to come back in November. Really? Yeah, there'll be 16,266 fans there for Survivor Series that paid 18,647. So we're going to call that a full house. Yeah, brother. And I think it was what we did in September that laid the groundwork for that sellout. on the oh, house show. You know what, Conrad? It now makes sense because Ricky and Robert were on that car. Oh. <laughs> they sold that son of a bitch out. You got to fit another person in there. They were hanging from the, <laughs> they were hanging from the rafters. Uh, on the house shows leading up to the show, you're going to be losing to The Undertaker almost every night in no DQ matches, including a full week of shows in uh, Canada. Uh, and we're a couple months removed from the King of the Ring and Steve Austin's big win, but they still haven't really put the rocket on him just yet. But there's reports at the time that there's a swell for Austin on TV and these house shows. The fans are starting to get behind him. Could you feel that? Oh, without a doubt. Yeah, without a doubt. Um, I remember Steve and I doing you know, a heel match in Montreal. Uh, a non-televised and man, it was so, you know, you could, yeah, it was great to be in there for the groundswell on that particular night. We pulled a rib on Leon, uh, gave uh, the finish was, finish was changed. <laughs> we did not tell Leon that his, his run-in was no longer required. Uh, and so Leon's waiting for a cue that never arrives. And then when we got to the back, Steve started yelling. <laughs> Poor Leon. It wouldn't even 
You know, that wouldn't even been an option to yell at Leon White, you know, uh, a year earlier. But here he's like, well, we're, I, I'm so sorry. Where was the queue? I didn't see the queue. Like, Finally, after 20 minutes, Leon, there was no queue. The finish has changed. But point being, Steve, oh, man, it was really obvious that he was connecting with the audience in a big way. Uh, they were cheering him even when he was up against top baby faces, but especially in a heel versus heel match. Oh, man, it would be almost like 95-5 or 90-10. The other big, big news at the time, at least here for the World Wrestling Federation, is that Bret Hart is going to be coming back, is going to turn down Eric Bischoff's offer uh, on the WCW side of things. And Bischoff in recent years has said he never made Bret an offer, and it didn't exist. <laughs> And of course, a lot of other folks, Dave Meltzer and some other folks in the business who might be related to Brett say that's BS, but no one's been able to produce the contract. Uh, did you hear what were the rumblings behind the scenes that, Hey, we might get Brett back. He's might be the rumblings behind the scenes were that whatever took place on raw that night when Brett made his decision was legit. Okay. that that sounded strange to me that we might go off the air with our top guy saying he was going elsewhere, but also desperate times call for desperate measures. We were losing on a weekly basis uh, to, to WCW. Uh, Mr. McMahon may have thought that would be captivating television, which it was, I believe it went overtime for about 10 minutes. And USA network hung in there with us, but among the guys, we were really looking at that monitor because we thought we might be losing the hitman. It's crazy to think, you know, how wrestling could have been different had that actually happened. Uh, it winds up being good for the company, but of course we know it doesn't last very long, a year and change. Um, and, uh, you know what, Conrad, I believe had Brett gone, it really would have fired up our cameo um, rivalry in a big way. Uh, <laughs> Brett's, Brett's the number two requested uh, wrestler and or athlete on Cameo in the world. Number one, you're looking at him. I love it. I love it. Uh, were you excited, you know, at, at this point in your career, would it have been a big deal to have a feud with Brett. Were you excited he's coming back thinking about all the magic you guys could have made together? Oh, uh, yeah. I only had two singles matches with Brett. Uh, one on uh shotgun Saturday night and a house show uh, in either Birmingham or Manchester, uh, UK. And that is one of two house show matches. I wish I had a video because it was just such a pleasure to be out there. we Worked a different type of match. We worked almost from the finish forward. Um, We changed a lot of things around, and it was an unusual match, but it was a really good match. And on Shotgun Saturday night, you know, uh, Brett, uh, he asked me if there was anything I wanted to do, and I said, this is a new show, and it's supposed to look really rough around the edges, so let's just just call in the ring and see what happens. And although we... We may have been better served for that match by calling a bunch of stuff. I think it had that rough around the edges look. This, you know, I did mess up a neck breaker, which I messed up uh, ten to fifteen percent of the time. I was just never sure which way to go, but I'm still not. 
But other than that, uh, I thought we had a good, solid match. Brett's stuff was, he was always going to be solid anyway. Everything Brett did looked good and was solid. Uh, please don't give me a Melcher rating on my match with Brett. Shotgun was, I thought it was good. And I've been living with that uh, feeling for, uh, for 26 years. But I did. I thought it was good. I loved working with Brett. And if I had, you know, with Brett back, the idea of having a big feud with uh, the best there is, best there was, the best there ever will be, was really appealing to me. Talk to me a little bit about Brett for a minute in terms of what made him so special. We hear everyone who worked with him and a lot of fans think he really is the best of all time. Uh, but I know that, you know, you being in the business, you see wrestling through a different lens than maybe myself or some of our listeners might. What were the, the little nuanced things that Brett did that really stood out to you that made him the excellence of execution? Oh, man. Well, everything Brett did looked good. Every single little thing. So he had the basics down. He had the psychology. Uh, there was a lot of gaga going around in WWE. That's a uh, Pat Patterson word for humor. And this was at a time period where a lot of the characters were vocations. Um, and there were some pretty lame one dimensional characters. And then in the center of it, you had the consummate professional. And Bret Hart could have a good match with just about anybody and a great match with a lot of the roster. You know, like all these, the, all these years later, Sean Waltman asking best match of Bret. Boom, Bret, no question about it. And I remember to this day how great that match was. So he was a guy who could light it up at any given time. Uh, he took such amazing pride in everything he did. And then on top of the basics and the psychology and the work ethic, he had some incredible bumps, uh, and he had a good imagination, too, as to how to use that ring. Uh, the figure four using the uh, the turnbuckle post uh, was incredible. He took that amazing chest-first bump yes. into the corner that I haven't seen anyone do nearly as well since then. Everything was crisp. Everything was well done, and he was just... Uh, you know, excellence of execution is not uh, is not hyperbole in, in his in his case. You know, science tells us the best way to achieve and maintain consistent deep sleep is by lowering our core body temperature. Where temperature controlled sleep repairs our muscles after a hard day's work, and it improves cognitive function, so you can always start your day feeling sharp and alert. Well, Sleep Me is the new home for Chili Sleep. They're still bringing you the same great sleep that Chili Sleep offered, but now under a new name. Sleep Me offers the coldest and most comfortable sleep systems available. They create the environment that meets your body's natural need for lower core temperatures. That's going to help promote deeper, more restorative sleep. It's really worked for me. I've had the Uller for a long, long time now, and I'm sleeping better than ever. In fact, I was worn out from my trip to Mexico this past weekend. When I came home, I slept 10 hours and 45 minutes. The Uller made it happen. They also make a cube and a dock pro sleep system. Either way, all three are water-based temperature controlled mattress toppers that fit over your existing mattress to provide you your ideal sleep temperature. Think of it as like a smart thermostat for your bed. My wife and I like to sleep at different temperatures. She likes to sleep a little warmer. I like to sleep a little colder. We can do that in the same doggone bed. Don't think of this as a water bed. There's no water in your bed, but water does have these amazing thermal properties. They can heat that water up or cool that water down, depending on what temperature you want. And you can even control it with an app on your phone. 
My wife even schedules her sleep. Think about that. She climbs into a warm bed. It warms her up, right? But then she doesn't want to get all hot and sweaty. So it cools her off so she can get that deep sleep, but then it warms her up to wake her up. And it's all automatic. You see these mattress pads, keep your bed at the perfect temperature for deep, cold sleep, chilly sleep. And now sleep me is designed to help you fall asleep, stay asleep and give you the confidence and energy to power through your day. Oh, and how about this new doc pro sleep system? It has two times, two times more cold power than the other models. It's whisper quiet. And it has a tubeless mattress pad design that allows for five times more cooling contact. What are you waiting for y'all? Check it out. I love it. You will too. Head over right now to sleep.me forward slash Foley to learn more and save 25% off the new purchase of any new doc pro cube or Uller sleep system. Now this offer is available exclusively for Mick Foley listeners and only for a limited time. That's sleep S L E E P dot me M E slash Foley to take advantage of our exclusive discounts and wake up feeling refreshed every day. Sleep dot me forward slash Foley. Talk to me a little bit about, and I want to see if you remember this, you have a match. I think it's a house show match in Anaheim right before the pay-per-view. It's you and the yeah. Undertaker, and the top rope breaks during the match. Okay. I've always been curious when you're in the ring, it's not like this is a dress rehearsal. There's fans in the stands. They've paid their money to see you guys. He's your sworn enemy. You're in a bit of a blood feud or what have you. And the, and the ring breaks. Now we've got to improvise. And I realized that was a different era. And you, you sort of clued us in earlier that the undertaker didn't like to plan everything. He wanted to call right. in the ring, but no one could predict this. Right. What is the rule of thumb to not just let sheer panic set in? How do you pivot and still try to tell a story safely without a top rope? Well, rule number one, if you were thinking of doing anything in the ropes, don't do it unless you're going to do it in a way they were the lack of the top rope uh, changes the outcome of that spot uh, in a negative way for the guy hitting the ropes. Uh, but it also gives you the opportunity that you can use the turnbuckle as a uh, a weapon of sorts. And then, uh, when in doubt, take a little rat lap around the ring. Uh, we go out into the crowd, uh, on several of our matches. Uh, so I don't, I don't recall ever panicking when a top rope broke. Like it was just a chance to, uh, get to the finish line, uh, through some other means. How common was that? How many times do you think that happened in your career? If you had to guess, uh, maybe 10. Maybe wow. Eight. Maybe even less than that. Uh, I imagine, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Every once in a while it would happen. I mean, that's why for you, you know, young prospective wrestlers, I was taught when you hit the ropes, boom, underneath the underarm and always have the, you know, the forearm outside so that as you're hitting, you are reaching for the second turnbuckle in the event that the top turnbuckle breaks. Because you can get really badly hurt. If you're expecting that to be there and it's no longer there, you want to have a chance instead of free falling, you want to have a chance of kind of flipping, uh, using that second rope as a pivot, flipping and hopefully landing with as little damage as possible. But it's in a business where you are going full tilt almost all the time to go full tilt, expecting to be, you know, shot back the opposite direction and find yourself free falling in a direction in the other direction that's uh, to be. Uh, pretty concerning, almost frightening. I'll go so far as to say it was frightening. 
Did you ever have a situation? I think Arn Anderson has told us before, one of the worst injuries he ever had very early in his career is when this happened. The top rope broke. He went down, hit his head on the concrete. He woke up in a hospital with his new friend, uh, the only guy who went to the hospital with him, Ric Flair. Did you ever fall and hurt yourself? Do you remember that happening when this top rope scenario happens? The worst top rope scenario snap that I saw of all things was uh, the day before I had my WrestleMania match with Edge. Now, I was not a fan of working out moves in the ring before a match, but this was what WWE was doing at the time. They wanted the agents, like, agents wanted to know too much. Uh, you know, you're like, well, put the boots to him. And well, well, how many boots? What kind of boots? Like, well, I'll get some heat. What kind of heat? How much? You know, I didn't like that. I didn't think it was comfortable. So anyway, I did not want to be out there in the ring rehearsing a match because it felt counterproductive to me. And a lot of people remember, you know, Edge going for the spear and going through the table. But on that night, Edge, he hits the opposite rope. So they just collapsed and fell apart. And so that match almost never happened because Edge went uh, butt over tea kettle over the top rope, and luckily he had a hand on that on that second rope, and he was okay. But you know, man, that was it was it was scary for sure. Let's talk about some news behind the scenes. JJ Dillon is going to leave the company and depart for WCW. He's been here for I don't know seven years or so. And I remember it being kind of a shock based on the, the rumor and innuendo that's out there. I think he left on around Shane McMahon's um, wedding. And there was some concern maybe of where is he going? Who is he talking to? He, of course, had been the head of talent relations. With him leaving, that's going to make way for Bruce Pritchard to try that job for a cup of coffee before throwing his hands up and realizing, not for me. And it becomes Jim Ross and what a run he had. But yeah. Talk to us about JJ because he was the guy you used to call on the phone every week looking for a gig, and now he's out of here. Every year. Sorry. I only called a, uh, JJ uh, when my contract with WCW was about to roll over. And while I was grateful for the, you know, the, the job opportunity, uh, you know, you just, you only want to see if the pasture might be greener elsewhere. And uh, I'd grown up as a huge WWE fan, and I know it was not JJ's fault. But when I was writing my book, all those feelings came back to me, like came uh, flooding back to me of how frustrated I would feel when I would be told, "Oh uh, no, we're we're currently not uh, looking for any new talent." And then JJ would you know tell me I was, you know, I should feel fortunate that I had a place to work. And then I would watch Raw like a day later, and I'd see the debut of people like Mantor. Duke the Dumpster Drozzy, and I'd be like, I was offended because I was like, don't they know that I know they're lying to me? Just say we don't want you. I mean, I would have felt better if JJ said, uh, Vince thinks you look seedy, that you don't look like a star, and you'll never step foot inside a WWE ring. I would have said, okay, I'm all right, I'm okay with that. Thanks for the honesty. But to say they're not looking for talent when they clearly were and just not talent that looked like me. So I did, uh, I dropped a couple F-bombs in my book, described as J.J. effing Dylan. But I know it was, you know, he was just repeating what Vince had told him. But it does highlight the fact that J.J. had a really thankless job. Yes. And I don't think I fully appreciated how 
difficult it is to work with Mr. McMahon on a daily basis. And uh, in JJ's book, he talked about uh, uh, Vince's driving. Yeah, Vince is a, I learned to be a defensive driver, and Vince is not a defensive driver. He's an offensive driver. Yeah. And not only will he drive at high speeds, he will do it while shaving in the car. And I drove with Vince to one town, and then I vowed, never again, my friend. Never again. <laughs> so you're not exactly upset to see JJ leave, but when you hear that Jim Ross and Bruce Pritchard maybe are moving up, do you think that might be a good thing for you? Yeah, well, I don't know if head of town relations uh, has a uh, now. Jim Ross obviously had a say, and Bruce was a guy who saw what I could bring to the table. So I don't want to say it did not make a difference because I think it did. But uh, I mean, the head of town relations is almost like the secretary of state in that. Yes, very capable people, but they are bringing you the vision of the in their case our president was mr mcmahon uh and there's not as much room for your personal misgivings uh so i wasn't sad i mean i wasn't sad to see jj go i think it brought to light just how much this monday night war was heating up yeah we start losing people in the office and then it was like, okay, you took J.J. Dell, and guess what? We're bringing in Lynn Brent. And Lynn worked behind the scenes with her husband, Dennis. Dennis is still his good friend. Uh, and then there'd be, like, uh, rumors that uh, WCW was trying to hire away <laughs> Julie and Terry, our seamstresses. Like, it was really, really heating up. And J.J., I guess, went for, uh, you know, a better offer without uh, the, the baggage that comes, you know, with uh, – you know, dealing with, with Mr. McMahon, which was not easy. So you brought up WCW. Are you keeping up with what's happening in WCW at all? Do you get a chance to either read in the dirt sheets or, or take a look at some tape? Well, at, by that point, I was not reading dirt sheets anymore. Uh, if they'd been really high on me when I debuted as mankind, I may have still been reading them, but I just felt like I was, there was uh distracting me from, not only from doing the best job I could in the ring, but more importantly, distracting me from being the best dad I could be. Because at that time, I was on the road a lot, and I wanted to be 100% dad when I was home, not the guy who was upset about a review that my uh, <laughs> match received. Uh, but I was aware of what WCW was doing because I would watch it every chance that I could. What did you think of their NWO presentation? I think this is the month where we see Roddy Piper show up over there, and it feels like they've got a lot of momentum. Were you feeling that? Yeah. Um, the phrase that I used and have used before is that they had the hot hand. Yes. And I, yeah, they still had the hot hand. Uh, even when we were surging and we were definitely making some gains and new characters were catching on talking about gold dust talking about stone cold steve austin myself to some extent uh, they still had a presentation and they had this up oh, man that the nwo was hot i mean over time they overdid a good thing you know uh there's a reason why you don't have 37 people showing up for nwo unions you know there's yep. a reason why why Virgil wasn't inducted into the WWE, WWE Hall of Fame with Scott Kevin. Uh, 
<laughs> and Sean Walkman. Um, yeah, I think they kind of maxed out when they had six, you know, the addition of Sean Walkman and a six box. That I think was when they were at their strongest. So anything after that felt had the tiniest feeling of sharp jumping to it. Yeah. But uh, they were still the leader, the acknowledged leader, but we felt like we were closing the gap creatively, if not uh, statistically. So I'm curious, you know, you make this decision to go to the WWF um, before the NWO is a thing. And you actually debut on Monday Night Raw in April of 96. We know we see the debut of Scott Hall the following month. Hulk Hogan turns in July. Boy, it feels like they have all the momentum at that point. By late 96, by October of 96, you've got to feel good about, hey, man, I'm in the main events. I'm working with the world champion. I'm working with the undertaker. But I think sometimes what fans forget is you're also doing this for money, not just for the accolades of I want to be champion or I want to be in the main event or I want to work with this guy or that guy. This is your job. And you see on the other channel, this place where you thought, Hey, maybe this is as high as I can go, not just creatively, but financially when they start to really warm up and they have the hot hand, is there any looking back and wondering, man, what if I'd have hung out? What if I'd have stayed the course? Or are you so happy with your lot in life at this point? That doesn't even cross your mind. Yeah, no, I didn't, I didn't do a whole lot of looking back. I'm so glad Paul Heyman had to talk with me in ECW when I told him I was thinking of reaching out to Eric Bischoff and like, Offering my services as like a high profile enhancement talent. And I really, I remember talking with my wife saying, okay, I'm making $3,000 a week in Japan, but you multiply that over <laughs> 12 tours and that's $36,000, right? right? You're not getting rich up there. And I'm coming home in really rough shape, really earning every cent of that money. But I thought with what I'm making in, in ECW, what I'm making in Japan, if I could make another $500 every Monday night, uh, I'd be okay with that. And uh, because I thought my future was Japan. I really did. Um, and, and ECW to some extent. And then Paul told me, like, he made me feel like I was capable of so much more than I realized. And he put, and I had completely cast off WWE by that point. And he said, you're a guy who could work there for the next 10 years. Turns out I didn't last 10 years, but I had a nice four year run. But that's when I really started thinking, yeah, yeah, I don't need to be back there in any way, shape or form. Uh, this is the hand that I, uh, have been uh, dealt and I'm going to play it as best as I can. So that when WWE came back into the picture, it was, uh, yeah, you know, it felt like a moonshot to me, like something I had completely, um, just completely given up on. If you're like me and are increasingly getting more and more concerned about cybercrime with people stealing your private data and invading your privacy, boy, have I got a solution for you. Of course, I'm talking about NordVPN. You see, NordVPN is a one-stop shop for all things cybersecurity. It's incredibly easy for me to use with just one click. Bam. I'm protected. You don't have to be some sort of tech genius or high tech redneck to use NordVPN. No, sir. With my NordVPN account, I can have up to six devices protected. I no longer have to worry about hackers, malicious sites, or pop-ups. And for one low monthly price, 
I have complete peace of mind knowing I'm protected. Do you ever get frustrated that you can't watch a certain live sporting event because they aren't televised or available in your country? Happened to me in Mexico. Well, with NordVPN, I can switch my virtual location to any country that's showing the event. Think about that. What I want to watch, when I want to watch it, so I don't miss out and I can watch the action live. Maybe some of us miss the old WWE network. I'm just saying the rest of the world has it. It's the price of a cup of coffee every month, y'all. A small price to pay for premium cybersecurity and access to a vast amount of entertaining content from all over the world. Grab your exclusive NordVPN deal by going to nordvpn.com forward slash Foley to get a huge discount off your NordVPN plan plus four months for free. It's completely risk-free with Nord's 30-day money-back guarantee. That's nordvpn.com forward slash Foley. One more time, nordvpn.com forward slash Foley. Well, with that in mind, let's get into the match. Uh, Dave Meltzer had this to say against competition from the first game of the world series, the world wrestling federation presented an ordinary pay-per-view show. The October 20th in your house buried a live show at market square arena in Indianapolis. The first WWF pay-per-view of 1996 without show saver, Shawn Michaels in a headline role came off as more of a basic house show with a good gimmick match on top that rather than a can't miss memorable show. The show drew 9,649 fans of which 8,238 was paid for a gate of $135,605. The largest wrestling crowd and gate in the Indianapolis market since the 92 WrestleMania. How about that? Mr. In your house pulling it through baby. Right. Uh, you got a 0.4 buy rate, which was 110,000 buys. Uh, compared to uh, mind games the prior month, it is down a little bit. That would have been roughly a 0.48 and 131,000 buys, but still you're going into a pay-per-view without your world champ. And you're in the same month as WCW's Halloween havoc, which Eric Bischoff has admitted is kind of their WrestleMania. So it's a big show. You're really competing for fans dollars. Uh, not everyone can afford to buy every single pay-per-view. We're making fans pick month to month. And you still got 110,000 people to reach into their wallets. That's a big deal. Yeah. And at that time, a lot of people were pirating both products too. They had a special box that allowed them to get the shows without paying for them. And, uh, you know, I think everything's relative so that when I was writing down my goals, or I was really big as far as writing down goals and visualizing, uh, one of my goals was to sell out Madison Square Garden. And one of my goals was to headline a pay-per-view event that did a hundred thousand buys. So by the standards of the times, that was, that was good. And I was really happy with it. And I was really happy to have this, uh, you know, this chance to follow up mind games with a guy that I really looked up to and respect to like Undertaker. And, um, yeah, it was, um, I'm glad he said it was a good, uh, gimmick main event. And it was, I don't know if it was. Great, great. I'd like to have another shot at it, but because it was the first one out of the box for a short time, it was the Bret Hart of uh, Buried Alive matches, and that it was the best. <laughs> there is the best there was, and, and for a short time, the best there ever would be. I love that you're so optimistic. Um, this is the show where we see Steve Austin use the iconic glass break at the start of his music. 
Uh, that really added a lot to his character for me as the fan. It almost became Pavlovian when you hear that glass break. The crowd just erupts. How important do you think a sound like that is? We, we, we got the tire screeching for you. We got the big gong for the Undertaker. It does feel as if a lot of the more classic and more iconic performers, man, they had almost a sound that let the fans know, oh, here he comes. What do you think of that? Well, talking to a guy who at the time had the dreariest entrance music of all time. Sure. Came down to the ring dressed from head to toe in brown. Uh, no pyro for me, Conrad. No dry ice. No. Even Gilbert got a sparkler. He did. Uh, uh, and I think that I was well served by Jim Johnston writing that peppier mankind's da 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 Right? But I was a baby face for months before he got me the peppier tune. So it does mean something, you know, and it was, you know, look, all of us, uh, you know, if I seem humble, that's, you know, uh, it's kind of an act. Um, it's mostly legit, but I, yeah, I, I was, I was competitive and I did resent people who had really cool music and really cool pyro who were competing with spots for me, uh, with me. So the sound can be so important. Uh, we DX as of this, uh, taping, you know, hey, they had their, uh, uh return or their, uh, anniversary, 25 year anniversary. DX, phenomenal, uh, a phenomenal group of people and one of the best, uh, uh, not teams, factions yes. in wrestling history. But they had this incredible advantage in that even if something they did on the air did not go over well, as soon as that fans are, it was like the gig is up because this is so much cooler than what anyone else has out there. So the sounds, uh, whether it was, you know, gold dust music was incredible. The Undertaker, it's like a happening, you know, Triple H had Lemmy and he had to sing a couple of great tunes. They had that phenomenal uh, DX thing. So it really did make a difference. And when I finally got the, you know, like the car screeching, yes. you know, for Wreck by Jim Johnston, that was that was good stuff. So you don't really, you don't realize how important it is unless you don't have it. Let's talk about somebody who didn't have it, at least in Vince's mind, Vader. Uh, that same night, Sid is going to beat Vader in a number one contenders match. Or As a reminder, this is October of 1996. In August, we got the main event with Shawn Michaels and Vader. We all remember what happened there. It didn't exactly go Vader's way. Shawn was pretty frustrated. And according to the legend, the plan was changed. Maybe once upon a time, there were going to be a series of main events. That would have had Vader and Sean working together at SummerSlam, again in Madison Square Garden at Survivor Series, and then the big payoff at Sean's hometown, the Alamo Dome, in January for the Royal Rumble. Instead, we pivot. And now Sid's going to win here. He's going to wind up winning the world title at Survivor Series in November. He's going to go on the main event at the Royal Rumble and even follow up with the main event, in fact, at the following WrestleMania not Vader, your old pal, your old traveling companion. Uh, this has to be tough for you to see because I know that he can feel it, right? Like, man, uh, I just lost my momentum. Yeah, you could see it. Uh, 
Man, you know, Leon was never quite the same after the Paul Orndorff incident. Yeah. Uh, I think inside, uh, and look, uh, I love Leon. But, uh, Leon, you get, there's, just, there's some people you say, somebody was hard work. You know, he was he was kind of hard work in that he'd have a few drinks and he'd have the potato chips all over the hair on his chest, you know take the shirt off, ruined so many 70s classics by singing them uh, out loudly in my car. It was at least five years before I could listen to Wild World. (laughs) (laughs) Singing, but, you know, he would have a few drinks, and and I hope this doesn't, you know, hurt the feelings of his son, Jesse. It's not intended that way, but it might be a little insight to how his dad was feeling, like he'd have a few drinks. Just out of nowhere, he'd say, I know I can beat up Paul Orndorff. Wow. Like, he wouldn't say he could have beat uh, Haku because, you know, Haku was one of the guys that <laughs> broke up the fight. I remember Leon going, what was I going to do at that point? Get my ass kicked by Haku as well? Um, but he felt like, uh, you know, to his dying day that he could have ta- taken Paul Orndorff. And I think just... It just seemed to humanize him in a in a non you know in a way that wasn't positive. It kind of took the monster feeling away from him, and it was difficult for him. I liken it to the time that I accidentally hurt John uh, Johnny Ace John Warnitis on my first tour of Japan in 1991. So Johnny had started doing a moonsault that his partner had done. Oh man, don't tell me I'm gonna blank on the partner's name. He's one of the, uh, uh, one of the greatest of all time. We used to call him uh, Kawata. No, 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 not Kawata, not Kawata. Oh man, we used to call him Rocket Fuel. Uh, it's gonna come to me. But the two of them had a team. It's awful. I can't recall it. One of the greatest Japanese wrestlers of all time. Um, and he did a moonsault. So Johnny, as his tag team partner, doing a moonsault was a big deal. Nobody thought Johnny Ace doing a moonsault. That was one of the, you know, most uh, intricate moves in wrestling at that time. So I thought it'd be cool. Johnny went for the moonsault, which would get the pop. I would go up there as if I was going to do a back suplex off of the uh, top rope. Johnny would turn it into a cross body and we'd get a false finish out of it. But my, you know, everything I learned from day one, tuck your chin, tuck your chin, tuck your chin. So here's Johnny with the headlock on me. And now all of a sudden when I clamp my chin, he's not able to get his arm out. And he hits in an unenviable way. It dislocates his shoulder. I remember calling home and telling my wife, I just uh, dislocated Johnny Ace's shoulder. Sit that away, Mick. Show them that nobody can pick on you. And I was like, no, no, that's... <laughs> Dislocating somebody's elbow, especially when it was rumored he was Mrs. Baba's favorite wrestler, Kenta Kobashi. Kenta yes. Kobashi. Uh, forgive me, uh, wrestling fans around the world, for not having that. But that guy was amazing, could have amazing matches with just about anybody. Uh, but from that point on, I felt like I was walking on eggshells. Like, I can't hurt anybody else. And also, uh, uh, one of the guys uh, was like an interim uh, between the office and the boys came up to me and he said there was some concern uh, that I was injuring fans by taking bumps into the crowd. 
And I just thought all was fair, like everything was on the table in Japan. Then I find out, you're what kind of weren't you not allowed to hurt the bystanders? Like the innocent by you can't do that. You can't hurt John Laurinaitis. Like I just felt like ah, if I hurt one more person, I'm out of a job. And I felt like I was walking on eggshells. And I think that's, I bring that up only because that's how I feel Leon was walking around in WWE because his reputation had preceded him. And I think people mixed up, you know, real stiff, realistic, um, strong style working with uh, a dangerous worker, which I did not think Leon was. Uh, now, while I say that, I'll grant you that I was there when he temporarily paral paralyzed Joan Thurman. Uh, and that's an awful thing. Aside from that, though. And Joe did come around, and he was fine, and Leon visited him, and Leon was really upset in the dressing room. You know, he was, you know, he, none of us want to end somebody's vocation, or, uh, no. as I say, as we talk, it's only one night removed from that injury that Hangman Adam Page had. And, uh, man, you know, the call for prayers was all over the internet, including for me, because we weren't sure if this guy was going to walk again. And so, right. man. How lucky we are to have him here, and uh, man, and I think it really meant a lot to Adam to get that kind of love from the wrestling world. But anyway, going back to Leon, I think the reputation was that he injured people, and I did hear one of the agents talking about Sean and saying, "Like this is our champion. Like you will and not tone it down, but they made it clear uh, that the company." would not be in a good position if our champion couldn't travel on the road. And now a word from our sponsor, BetterHelp. Have you ever found yourself stuck focusing on problems rather than solutions? I got to admit, that was me back in 06, a relationship ended, and I wasn't exactly sure how to handle it. And it can be tough to sort of train your brain to stay in that problem-solving mode when faced with a challenge in life. But when you learn how to find your own solutions, man, there's just no better feeling. A therapist can help you become a better problem solver, making it easier to accomplish your goals, no matter how big or small. That was my experience in my relationship. And I'm happy to say, man, I'm happier than ever in my current relationship. And I give a lot of that credit to me actually seeking out some therapy. It was nice to just be able to talk to someone. And I felt like I could uh, be myself more, if that makes sense. Sometimes it's too close. You don't want to talk to your parents or your friends or your coworkers. Just having someone else to talk to, meant a lot to me. And now I'm more confident and I'm less stressed. I feel more like myself. And if you're thinking of giving therapy a try, boy, better help is a great option. It's convenient. It's accessible. It's affordable. And it's entirely online. Get matched with a therapist after filling out a brief survey. And oh yeah, you can switch therapists anytime. When you want to be a better problem solver, therapy can help you get there. Visit betterhelp.com slash Foley today to get 10% off your first month. That's better com slash Foley, betterhelp.com slash Foley. Well, let's get to the match. You guys are going to go 18 minutes and 25 seconds. It's of course the main event. It is a buried alive match on a show named buried alive. And they have a dirt mound cemetery behind the ringside seats on the arena floor. Meltzer would say, although the ending was goofy, the match itself was a really good effort by both. Mankind took a lot of crazy bumps into the guardrail, over the guardrail, onto the floor, and on the steps. 
Undertaker actually did a great plancha and must be the biggest guy to ever try such a stunt. So <laughs> let's let's pause there for a minute. Uh, do you remember there being discussion beforehand that he was going to try a plancha? Because, and I know he does it in 97, and we've talked about yeah. that before, but this is really the first time we see him do anything like this. And you had said during a house show, maybe he wanted to show a different gear and do more striking, but that is something the old undertaker from 1990 would have never done. Right. <laughs> yeah. He was definitely, uh, bringing more, uh, ammo into his game. And I took it as such a compliment that he wanted to try that out. I was considered somebody who was good catcher. Uh, at the time, I definitely wanted to break my guy's fall, especially the Undertaker. So I, I thought it was a great honor that he wanted to try that out. And uh, it's really, it's majestic when he takes flight, right? It's really cool. It's I, I rem- remember we showed the uh, uh, the two bald eagles coming out of the tree at the Foley house. And I was yes. like, ah, I yelled out there, it's majestic, it's majestic. That's how I felt when I saw the Undertaker coming at me. Like it was similar to my feeling of seeing the bald eagle with the similar wingspan. It was really awe inspiring. It's kind of a cool feeling when you can both mark out and prepare yourself to save, uh, you know, to cushion the blow for one of the biggest stars in the business. Meltzer will continue describing the match, saying it was worked similarly to a lot of recent ECW main events with crazy bumps and brawling, but the work itself wasn't as sloppy as an ECW. Undertaker took a hard chair shot to the face from Mankind after no-selling an earned shot by Paul Bear, and at one point they brawled back to the cemetery era, area, and Undertaker was thrown into the grave and pulled Mankind into it. Mankind then threw dirt into Undertaker's eyes. Undertaker would hip toss Mankind off the dirt mound onto the floor and DDT him on a chair in the ring, hit him with a chair, and then leg drop him with a chair on his face. So let's just pause right there. The hip toss off the dirt mound onto the floor. Where does that uh, rank on this Foley risk reward? I thought it was pretty safe uh, risk given the reward because I knew I was going to clip the uh the mound and that my momentum would propel me down the rest of the earth i i you know you know i try not to prepare answers and i try not to watch it because i want to relive it and plus the matches are always better in my head anyway so you don't want me down to get uh i guess it wasn't as good as i remember it but i do remember thinking all right was same thing with going downstairs, you know, you do them as, and, and please don't take this as my lesson of how to fall downstairs. But my feeling was the faster you went, the less likely you were to be injured because things are going so fast, you know, that it's, unless there's the big crash at the end, that the actual chance of getting injured while going that fast are not nearly as high. Uh, if that makes sense at all. I'm not a scientist. These are all theories that have not been proven, by the way, but they made perfect sense to me. Uh, and I just thought if I could be hip-tossed off the mound, that I was going to catch the dirt before I got to the ground, and I think I did. And it made for, uh, you know, kind of a memorable moment without hurting me too bad. Talk to me about a leg drop uh, with a chair on your face. That can't, That doesn't sound fun at all. Brother, you're turning your head so that in the worst case scenario, you're not exposing your teeth, your nose, 
um, teeth, your nose are the main, and teeth, your nose and jaw are the main thing. So you turn that head. So there's a little bit of flatness there. I can't tell you for a fact if I had uh, a few fingers under the chair or not. I know I've done it both ways. Uh, but I've done that spot quite a bit. I mean, I remember doing it with Sandman and ECW when it was hammer coming off the, uh, the top rope. Uh, so I thought, Hey, if I can do that for Sandman, then certainly, and I, I said, certainly I can do it with Undertaker. And uh, he gets such good height. He's got a really good vertical, especially for a guy that size. And uh, on the fully risk-reward ratio analysis, definitely worth doing in a main event. Next up, The Undertaker is going to throw him in the ring steps a few times and finally hit the tombstone. Undertaker carries him to the cemetery, but Mankind recovers and gets the mandible claw on. Undertaker gets out and choke slams Mankind into the grave for the victory. It starts burying him with the dirt. Wait, oh- Going to t- I specifically heard from a fan who wanted me to discuss the small package down the mound of earth. We got to talk about that. Got to talk about it. Oh, again, going to the Bret Hart of small packages in a Buried Alive match. I think that people just saw me doing said, we're not even going to try that. Like, it's been done as well as it possibly can. Is it my idea to take a simple pinning maneuver that would not yield uh, much of a pop in the ring, take it outside its element, and all of a sudden it becomes something pretty cool. So, for example, uh, the you know the sunset flip in the ring is hasn't beaten anybody in a couple dozen years, but you do that off the ring apron, brother, and it looks like a million bucks. Do it from the second rope uh, to the uh, outside, especially if there's no mats out there, and brother, now it's a high impact move, highlight reel. So I just thought. Here's something that you would never see in a Mankind Undertaker match, a small package, but because uh, of the Mound of Earth, we rolled down the dirt, and I thought it was uh, pretty cool. That is cool. Is that something you try to practice ahead of time or just have confidence and cross your fingers, and here we go? It's one of those things that may have been so goofy I would not even have proposed it beforehand. Okay. Uh, so I can't tell you whether or not I passed that by Undertaker. I think I'd be afraid that he would uh, put the kibosh on it. So it may have been called out there on the earth. So as the ref tries to stop the Undertaker from throwing dirt on him, he throws the referee off the cemetery. And then finally, Terry Gordy shows up under a mask with a shovel and hits the Undertaker with a shovel, pulls mankind out of the grave, puts Undertaker into the grave. Yes. Several heels begin burying the Undertaker until the thunder and lightning in the arena with the carry finish. Now, that's Meltzer's write-up. He also gives the match three and three-quarter stars. Clearly, he didn't like the carry finish. We'll talk about that in a minute. But I'm I'm curious, as you're out there doing your thing, and you realize, because I've always felt like this had to be an audible, this was taking a lot longer maybe than people imagined, and then they send everybody out there and get him some help or we're going to be here forever. Right. Yeah. There's a reason why the, every subsequent, uh, buried alive match, I think it was three or four of them had a backhoe out there Yes, because they realized having one or two people, uh, trying to fill in a, uh, you know, six feet deep, six feet across four, four, it's a lot of cubic, uh, square feet to try to fill, especially with people who are exhausted. And remember, I've just come out of a grave where I've had earth thrown on me. 
I've just wrestled 18 real physical minutes. I have had earth thrown on me. Now, I'm going to grant you that there was a clandestine way for me to get real air into my lungs. And this is where I have to tippy-toe because I, I think people like to have a little bit of the magic, you know, just keep it a little magical. But I can go so far as to say I trusted Richie Posner. He had concocted a way for me to get oxygen, even as I was being covered with earth. And I was being covered with earth. But it's an, just because you can breathe doesn't mean it's not an eerie feeling to be buried alive. And I'll go on. I'm going to go on the record and say, without that match, there is no Dale Doback, Brennan Huff buried alive reference in Step Brothers at all. So we've yeah. talked about Will Ferrell's love for wrestling and how he's essentially doing a Ric Flair imitation um, hair, suit, everything uh, in Eastbound and Down. But yeah, you go back and you watch. Uh, uh, Step Brothers, there's no buried alive scene without me and The Undertaker burying each other alive in October 96. Well, we can clearly see you guys face down with your hands stretched out near your face. And I sort of assumed, okay, there's an oxygen hose down there somewhere. But um, I am curious about the carry finish, the hand coming up. I mean, this is live TV. It's a live pay-per-view. There's a live crowd there. It does feel as if this is something you would walk through some of the stuff just because there is some quote unquote magic. Talk to us about, you know, I mean, when you get to the show that day before the doors are open, do you do any sort of walk through just for the space and the finish? Cause it feels like you have to, right? Yes. Yes, we did. And this again, I will just say that there was a subterranean world. Yes. That you would only think existed in a sci-fi movie. But I got to visit that subterranean world. And what they had concocted allowed us to... Uh, just think of the old uh, the coin trick. I don't, you know, I don't want to attach a, a country of origin because it's going to sound like slang. But that was the first uh, magic trick I ever seen. You know, they get the, the coin, you slide it in, and come out, it's not there anymore. And I think what we did, or what Richie worked out, uh, was along the same lines that uh, the, you know, the human being is in there, and then there's a little switcheroni, and now that human being is no longer in there. Uh, but I think the wild card was that none of us realized how long it would take to fill so originally it's just me and gordy i can't tell you for a fact whether those other guys were supposed to join or whether they were just recruited immediately when they saw this isn't gonna cut it and especially gordy you know i've already i went on record as saying he was one of the 10 best workers in the world especially uh, you know american workers um for a period of you know three to five years he was one of the very best but when it came to covering up a grave, brother, that wasn't part of his M.O. Because it, I I was, I don't remember if I had a shovel. I'm trying to, but uh, whatever way, I'm trying to scoop as much stuff as I can. And then Terry turns around so his back is to the grave. And he s starts acting like my cat Sonny used to in the litter box. You know, like just kind of <laughs> scooping <laughs> little tidbits of earth. 
And I'm thinking, this is not the way to fill a grave. And then all of a sudden we had help. Uh, Triple H was there. Uh, Justin Hawk Bradshaw was there. I'm not sure if there was a oh, gold dust came and helped me out. So we had a total of five people. And uh, yeah, it was a pretty ominous scene. I remember uh, traveling back. I think it was traveling with Bradshaw and Dutch Mantel at the time. And Bradshaw said he looked down in the audience and there was a father with his young son and he could see him mouthing the words, I can't believe what I'm seeing. <laughs> and I, I would counter by saying, sir, we promise you someone is going to be buried alive and dug on it. Someone will. Hey guys, listen up. I know these days when you watch the news, it feels like it's one hit after another and it's all bad news for the economy. Well, let me give you some good news. It's not all that bad when it comes to real estate. Let me explain. You see, a year ago, man, real estate was hot, hot, hot. Everybody and their brother was trying to go out and buy another house. What did that mean? It was so competitive that a lot of folks got discouraged. So let me ask you, have you thought about buying a house in the last couple of years, but maybe just couldn't win a bid? I used to hear that all the time. Well, now is the time to buy. Yes, interest rates have creeped up a little bit, but what that's created is an opportunity for you. A year ago, it wasn't uncommon for there to be more than a dozen offers on a home, many of which were over list. That is not the case today. So if you got discouraged once before about trying to buy a new house, now's the time to take another look. Now, yes, interest rates have creeped up a little bit, but you're not going to overpay for the home. But here's what you will do. You'll stop throwing your money away on rent. And now you'll get a greater tax deduction. That's right. You see, at the end of the year, you're going to get a statement from your mortgage company that shows how much interest you paid. And you get to write all of that interest off. That means you could get a huge tax deduction. You never get that as a renter. Not only that, homes are still going up in value. Don't believe the hype. All of the economists believe long-term real estate always works out. Let me give you an example. Maybe way back when, in the housing collapse of 2008, you bought in 2007 and maybe overpaid. Buddy, if you hung in there, that house is worth a whole heck of a lot more now. If you played in the stock market, you know what I'm talking about. You only lose money when you throw in the towel. Real estate long-term always performs well. So here's my advice to you. Date the rate, marry the house. Find the house that you and your family love long-term because here's what's not long-term, these higher rates. I've yet to see a single economist who doesn't agree with me that rates are going to return. So doesn't it make sense to get the house you want right now? And then when rates improve, man, just get a lower monthly payment. In the meantime, you'll enjoy a greater tax deduction and that property is going to continue to appreciate, meaning you're building equity and wealth for yourself. Not only that, how about this? We're going to save you some cash at buywithconrad.com. We're going to give you the peace of mind of a seven-year guarantee. When rates improve over the next seven years, not if, but when, that's my prediction, we'll refinance you again with no new origination points. Think about that. That could save you thousands of dollars and give you the peace of mind of knowing that you got the right house for your family right now, and then when the rates improve, man, get a lower monthly payment. Now, you don't need perfect credit or money out of your pocket to do this, but you do need to hurry to buywithconrad.com. That's the first step. You tell us how much you want to put down and what you want your monthly payment to be. We get you approved, and then you go shopping just like a cash buyer at buywithconrad.com. NMLS number 65084, equal housing lender. Seriously, if you've thought about buying a house over the last couple of years, but you got discouraged, Now's the time to take another look.
Let me run the numbers for you right now. You'll be glad you did at buywithconrad.com. Woo Wings, a virtual restaurant concept from the man himself, the nature boy, Ric Flair. Enjoy the legendary flavors and world championship wings by ordering with your Uber Eats or Postmates app. Woo Wings is now open in Nashville, San Antonio, Jacksonville, Florida, as well as Huntsville and Tuscaloosa in Alabama, with many more locations coming soon. Try the only chicken wings worthy of carrying the name of the 16-time world heavyweight champion. Tell them, Nate. Woo Wings, legendary flavors, world championship wings. Woo! Woo Wings. Yeah! Woo Woo! So the ending, which we referenced, the carry finish, the hand comes up through the grave, and it only happens after lightning strikes. Uh, you know, listen, with anybody else, we might say the lightning strikes are a little silly, but somehow with The Undertaker, it just works. You're uh-huh. in the ring now for the first time when the lightning strikes. Uh, this compared to the Chamber of Horrors, boy, there's just no comparison with the the research and the prep mm-hmm. and I mean, the WWE is another level. As silly yeah, as it would be, well done. This trick, brother. And, uh, you know, Conrad, were you at the one-man show in 2013? I had a story that involved the match, the Buried Alive match, and my conversation with Mr. McMahon prior to, um, prior to my Hall of Fame induction, where I wanted to fly into the sky on a sleigh with Santa because I'd never had a a great entrance or exit. And when Vince told me they didn't have the capability of it, I was like, you made a bolt of lightning come down from the scoreboard in Indiana. Like, I'm pretty sure, like, in New York City, in the most famous screen of the world, we could find a way to lift me into the sky on a sleigh with Santa. But And I, I did not get my way. You know, I did not. I eventually Santa came out at the end, but it wasn't quite the same. To this day, I maintain I could have easily flown away in a sleigh with Santa. And uh, I will ne- I will never forget, you know, there's the shock I felt when a uh, bolt of lightning came down from the scoreboard. And this is where I honestly can't remember if it was done. And I don't know how they do it. And I don't really, in some cases, want to know. Right. It's possible that it was only there on the TV. But in my head, Conrad, that thing hit the earth not five feet from where I'd stood. And then Undertaker's hand came up. And Jim Ross said, he's alive, he's alive. The hand went back down. And the craziest thing of this whole surreal situation is that <laughs> you know where I'm going with this, right? Yeah, yeah. Because it was in your house, a two-hour show, they still had a couple of non-televised, advertised dark matches. <laughs> and so here's, he's alive, he's alive. Then the hand goes down, and five seconds later, you hear the new Rockers music coming on. And they just went out and had a match. It wasn't like there was any uh, valiant attempt to unearth the Undertaker or pull him out of there. It was just like, da-da, da-da, da-da. I can't remember the, the, you know, the new Rockers theme, and neither do any of you. Uh, but that was it. process what we're saying here boys and girls little kids in the crowd just saw the undertaker die yeah and be buried and now here comes al snow 
It's remarkable, yeah. dude. Remarkable. The crazy thing is, on that one night, I buried The Undertaker alive, but Al Snow killed the town. <laughs> we couldn't go back to Indianapolis for years. For years. <sighs> there were times that Al was so bad that people would still be booing me after he left. It's that, amazing. Yeah. It's a, what a story. What a show. What a scene. As a reminder, you, uh, you, you managed to win this with a little help from the masked executioner, AKA the debuting Terry Gordy, Justin Hawk, Bradshaw, gold dust, Hunter Hearst, Helmsley crush, Paul bear. And of course, when the thunder and lightning hit, everyone's scared. And here comes the purple glove and, off we go. When it's over, are you relieved that you, you made it through this gimmick match and, and came yeah. off pretty well? Or what are you thinking? I, I, I felt really good about it. Um, man, only deep in, you know, my respect for the undertaker and the, the strength he has, because, uh, when he brought me to the grave, it was about 15 minutes into a pretty physical match. And he just draped me over his shoulder like I was a child and walked me to the graveyard. Um, and he was just, uh, he was really smooth to work with. It was so much fun. Technically, I think I got the loss in this one. I think the, um, the match was declared. I'm not sure. We'll have to go back. I don't know if we did, but it, whether or not it was a loss, it was a moral victory. And if it was a victory, I never did win another match against Undertaker. So my my record, I'm guessing I wrestled him a hundred times. It's either two and ninety-eight or three and ninety-seven. But I got those big wins when it counted, and uh that was uh really the rocket attached to my back that really helped get that character over. It's it's always a series of uh, breaks that happen to go your way that end up like in a big push. But uh, without The Undertaker um, out of the gate and without him wanting to do business, Conrad, I don't think there's a Foley's pod because I don't think people care enough about what I did to, to merit uh, anything. I don't think I... <laughs> yeah, I, I don't... And the, the, that, that feud really set me up well for the rest of my run. Well, I think technically, since we're going to, you know, call it what it was, the Undertaker won the match, but he damn sure did wind up underneath the dirt. So yeah. Uh, the next day you guys did a superstars taping in Cincinnati gardens. It's Undertaker, Psycho Sid, and Mark Marrow against Goldust, Mankind, and Steve Austin. I'm sure after all of that, Undertaker was glad to come back to life. He reincarnated and tagged with Mark Marrow. So things are going according to plan. Uh, let's do some questions. <laughs> No disrespect. We all love Mark Miro and what a great job he's doing for human beings <laughs> these days. Yes. Uh, Adam Leeson wants to know, is the undertaker Mick's favorite opponent of all time? And does Mick have any funny Paul bear stories from this era? Oh man. It's, it's, it's so tough to pick out a favorite one hand. There's, you know, maybe Terry Funk, uh, Steve and I had a blast rock and I Hunter who I might want to work for at another time. Uh, you know, you have to put him up there as we had amazing matches, but the truth is like, like I said, without the undertaker coming out of the gate, you know, uh, my story kind of ends unceremoniously, you know, maybe as a guy who goes, I think it's pushed down the car and 
is largely forgotten. So the Undertaker, by virtue of the fact that he meant so much to my career, and also by virtue of the fact that the matches were really enjoyable, is probably my all-time favorite opponent. And as far as Paul Bearer, uh, there is truth to that old cucumber thing. Mm -hmm. I don't want us to uh, uh, know too much about it, but Paul Bearer kind of showed that to me. And the story I tell, uh, my favorite Paul Bearer story, uh, I've told it before, but I think it's worth a retelling, is that when we were at the Catholic Youth Center, CYS, which was a great venue in Scranton, Pennsylvania, it only sat about 2,500 people, but it was a loud, boisterous audience. Uh, but the powers that be in the Catholic uh, you know, hierarchy were get in Scranton were a little concerned with the uh, uh, attitude, era, rebellious nature. And so Jack Lanza spoke to every WWE superstar and Al Snow. Uh, yeah, yeah, I got that in there. Stuck I, in love there. I love uh, it. But he did not talk to me because I didn't use bad language. We go out there for the match. It's me and Kane. Uh, whether we're challenging or whether you're the champions doesn't really matter. Billy Gunn and Road Dog do their thing. And Billy says, if you're not down with that, I got two words for you. Then he gives the mic to the crowd, you know, and they chant out, suck it, because 2,500 people chanting suck it is so much better than one man doing it. And then I went into that mankind mode where I took that, uh, you know, challenge or threat literally. And I grabbed the microphone and I said, hold on a second. Let me see if we can find mankind for this. Hold on. It'll be right here. Be here. Uncle Paul, I don't want to suck it. You can't make me suck it. No, I'm never going to suck it. Suck it. Suck it. Suck it. Suck it. Suck it. And when I got to the back, Jack Lonzo was standing there and he was shaking his head. He's smoking a cigarette and he said, we will never be back at the CYS again. So I, uh, I killed that town for us. <laughs> Paul Lasky wants to know, hi, Mick, at what moment did you realize Terry Gordy slash the executioner experiment was ultimately a bad idea? Well, you know, I had my questions about it. Uh, I was hoping it would go well. Uh, man, he just wasn't the same guy. I think he was, it was pretty i mean it was pretty obvious pretty quickly and uh i don't think he made it into the new year i don't i don't know if he was there more than a few months uh so it was a shame but i traveled we traveled with him uh it, it was a little bit of babysitting um i really like he was a nice guy i'll always remember he was nice to me on my first tour, and he didn't have to be. Actually, right. gave me a pair of external speakers because he just picked up some new ones. Bro, can you use these? Oh, yeah, yeah. I, you know that was that, that the world to me that Terry Gordy gave me a pair of uh, speakers. Uh, so I think it was pretty obvious within a couple of months, within a maybe in a few weeks. Here's one from uh, Kyle. He wants to know, in your opinion, what's a more iconic Market Square Arena photo? Andre holding the world title after defeating Hogan or the Undertaker's hand popping through the grave? There you go. I, uh, well, I don't know. What was the first one? 
So I don't know if you recall, but they had the, the largest audience ever. It wasn't Saturday night's main event. It was called the main event. And they did the twin Hebner referee. Ooh, oh, that was there. Yeah. That's gotta be more iconic than ours. Just because the business was hotter because it was on NBC. Probably. Right. Yeah. And I, you know, I think, um, I had not yet pushed, uh, be in your house pay-per-views up to legendary proportion. Right. Like and a myth of mystery in your house was just starting to grow. And I don't think we'd had enough time to nurture it to where it was truly the happening uh, that it needed to be. Uh, George Jones, maybe not that one, wants to know, <laughs> Nick, do they have any other plans to add other members to your stable besides the executioner? So that's interesting. It's, it's Paul Bear, it's Mankind, it's the executioner. Do you remember other people being discussed? I don't. I do not remember that. Uh, you know, Gold Dust and I were aligned, but he wasn't part of my stable. But yeah, that was where it began and ended, I believe. Yeah, I don't. Nobody else came along, right, to be part of that crew. Kane, Kane did. Yeah, you know, Kane. Uh, well, the, you know, Kane became you know, the, the stuff he did. Uh, the vignette with uh, the reveal of uh, Kane as Paul Bearer's real son was great. The teaming, uh, it, it was me, Kane, and Undertaker for a while as a, as a, a faction. That was good stuff. Next week, we're going to be talking about when things are coming to an end for you. It's going to be WWE and your return in 2012. We'll also talk about your last match at the Royal Rumble, being involved with uh, CM Punk, playing Santa Claus, being run over by Alberto Del Rio, and the plans for what could have been Mick Foley versus Dean Ambrose. So uh, that should be a fun episode next week, Mick. Yeah, 2012. A lot of things went on for me there. I look forward to it. Again, I want to thank everybody for making the choice. It's being choosing. Uh, I don't ever want to divide our audience, but uh, if you have a chance, uh, vote in the midterms. I think it's important. Uh, really let your voice be uh, heard. Uh, and that's about as political as we're going to get on the show because we are a, uh, a diversion from the real world. And, uh, we appreciate all of you who take time out of your schedule and listen to us, uh, whether it's on your way to work while you're doing the treadmill, whatever the case may be. It's a crowded field, as you know, Conrad. Yes, and, sir. Uh, you convinced me, uh, that there was room for me here and there's only room for me here because so many of you have decided to make us part of your weekly schedule. Follow us on uh, Twitter at Foley is pod. You can follow Mick at real Mick Foley. I am at Hey, Hey, it's Conrad. And, uh, we'd love for you to hit the subscribe button. Go ahead and throw us a like, leave us a five-star review. If you think we've earned it. Yeah. And don't forget to check out our uh, YouTube. That's the easiest way to introduce new listeners to our show. Maybe they're a little intimidated by some of the longer run times. They can get bite-sized clips over at youtube.com forward slash Foley's pod. And if you just can't get enough, Mick, Mick, you're still on the road. You're still making some appearances. And as a a reminder, you can still get a cameo. Uh, Now, this is not an ad. It's definitely not an ad. It's just a public service announcement. If you want a little uh, keepsake for a birthday or a holiday or an anniversary or a special occasion, you can do that over on Cameo, right, Mick? cameo.com slash Mick Foley. I'm going to do three cameos uh, right as soon as we're done before I hit the road for the next city. I love doing them and I think you can tell uh, you know if you look at each other you're like look at your friend be like 
I honestly believe there's no place that guy would rather be than sitting there doing that cameo for me because it is true. I love doing them. And I consider it an honor when someone reaches out and wants me to put a special touch on a big day. Uh, so that's cameo.com slash Mick Foley. And I will see you next week when we go back to 2012. Right here on Foley is Pod.